just finished yesterday celebrating a thousand-year period of God ruling directly over all of mankind. We know that God the Father is supreme. He rules this universe, but he has allowed Satan to have an influence and a major major action in, in the world at large, the authority he was given, and for us to make our decisions and set up our own governments. And this thousand-year period we call the millennium. Now, it's not just a millennium. We call it the millennium because you and I know exactly what that means. In looking forward to the time that Christ will set up his kingdom. So we all know to which to what that refers. And we are not the only ones that acknowledge the Bible talks about a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. There are other churches that, that do the same, this time of world renewal that they see, and the Bible talks about God doing that. However, that's not so today, even as was mentioned in the sermonette. We are here today to celebrate something that very few people in the history of mankind has ever understood. And yet those of us here and those of us, our brethren around the world, understand what this day is about because we've been selected by God to understand what this this day pictures, this eighth day that is a, if you just read it the way it's worded, and we'll do this in a moment in Leviticus, it appears to be like an addendum to the to the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's not just an add-on. It's not a PS note uh, at the end of the letter. It is a unique and special holy day in God's sight with a very special and separate meaning. Down through the ages, very few people have understood what you and I understand. And that privilege has brought us here today together. Let's turn back to Leviticus 23. And take note of exactly what the Bible does say about this day. In verse 34, in Leviticus 23, he says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the eternal. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. We shall have this sacred service. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. He just says this is the eighth day. It's a Sabbath. It's time for a holy and special convocation. And we always, in the church, refer to this as the last great day. Now, why do we do that? Let's turn over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Verse 37, near Christ is in Jerusalem, and he's gone up to the feast uh, after part of his family has gone ahead of him. And he says in verse 37, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me 
and drink. So we refer to this as the last great day. And he, he's saying here this the last day of the feast that uh, he refers to that great day of the feast. So we call it the great day. Now it's interesting the word here, that great day. Uh, not too many references to that, but there's a Greek word used there. It's called it's mega. Greek word is mega for great. And when we say mega, you and I understand what that means. We have mega lottery today. Uh, we know that what that means, a lot of money. We talk about people being mega rich. It means they have a lot of money. It's a great wealth. But the Greek word mega, when you look in the actual meaning of it, it refers to something spectacular, exceedingly great, and even the greatest, depending on the context, but a spectacular day. When we take the time to reflect on this. It's easy to understand why mega would be the Greek word chosen for this particular day, on that great day of the feast. It's a spectacular step in God's plan of salvation. A very great day. So this morning we will rehearse what this day means and why it's called a great day and understand, again, renewed discussion of why this day is so special, why it should be called great. So first let's understand clearly what God is a God of. Because if you go by the understanding or the characterization of the Bible and, and God, and I mentioned this in the first message, that the world looks at the God of the Old Testament as being a harsh, domineering, dominating, unforgiving God. And who authorized the death of many of, of Israel. But in reality, God is not that kind of God. He's not harsh. He is patient and he is loving. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And in verse 18, these Sadducees are tempting Christ trying to entrap him in his words to sort of, I say, either to corroborate or deny what they believed because they did not believe in a resurrection. So then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, now, there's, by calling him that, they're inferring at least they have some respect for his opinion, which in reality they were trying to entrap him. Says, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, and then so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, so they don't believe in a resurrection, but they're, they're throwing these words in. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? 
for all seven had her as wife. And Christ indirectly answers their question, but first he indicts them. Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, so he comes around to answering the question now, that they rise and have not, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him and said, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And clearly pointing out that these great patriarchs of Israel would in fact be resurrected. It says, you therefore are greatly mistaken. So he pointed out that then one of the scribes came and having heard this reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, went on to ask another question, still trying to entrap him. Christ clearly said there is a resurrection of those that have served him, and they are going to live in the future. He's pointing out he's not just the God of three great patriarchs who have died. In fact, they are going to live again, and he is their God. And what he is saying there is that God is a God of life. God is a God of life. And if you want to use that for a title that would be appropriate, the last great day tells us that God is a God of life. Let's turn back to Psalm 68. And we'll discuss this concept and understanding that God is a God of life. And we go through several verses. Psalm 68, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Blessed be the Eternal, who daily loads, loads us with benefits. He supports us greatly. The God of our salvation. Verse 20, our God is the God of salvation, and to God the eternal belong, uh, escapes from death. That God is a God of life. He is going to render salvation to mankind. That was why we were created, to have life eternal in due time. Today he is a God of, if you will, ultimate deliverance. We ask God to deliver us all the time from various Dangers or ills to which we might be exposed, some seen, some not seen. We ask God to put his angels around us to deliver us in this life. But ultimately, the ultimate deliverance is to be given life in his kingdom. So how did all this start? Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll read here simply verses 6 and 7. Breaking into the middle of the account, which all, all of us are familiar with this, this account. In verse 6, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the eternal God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. This was a physical beginning of God giving life. 
beginning of a 7,000-year program of life. 7,000 years, God has been working with mankind to bring him, uh, worked for 7,000 years to bring him to this point where he is going to give life eternal, and it's not just physical. Let's turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. Because we understand that Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament. He was the one who executed the plan that he and the Father had developed in time past. If I use that expression before God planned this before time began. This plan of salvation is put together. We find out what Christ's part in it. In verse 13... Verse 13 of Acts chapter 3, it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Then you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. The margin here says the originator. Talking about the Prince of Life, it says he was the originator of life. He was the one who breathed into Adam the breath of life and started this family on a physical basis that God would work with over the next millennia. And a little bit of irony there is that they killed the originator of life, the one who brought life to the earth in all its forms, and especially that of human beings. And he is the originator. Let's turn also back to to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we'll read verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father was sent, has sent the Son, the Savior of the, of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Pointing out here that God is love, and that love for mankind and for his plan explains why he is dealing with us as he does. In verse 17, just to point something out here again, he talks about said that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. This scripture is telling us that you and I not only should have bold faith, strong faith in the return of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God being established, but you and I should have boldness in our calling that God is going to see to it that you and I are in that kingdom. 
if we do our part and we remain faithful, that God is going to bring us into that kingdom and give us life. Because he not only loves the world, he loves all of us as well. And let's turn over what was mentioned in, in the sermonette. But nonetheless, in the context here, I'd like to repeat this in, in, in Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 9, which is one of those scriptures, and we'll again refer to this briefly again in just a few moments in what, is, what it means. Verse 9 says, The eternal or the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In creating mankind, God wanted all human beings to be saved. Now, as we'll see, that he knew that would not be a total reality, but that's his desire, that all would be willing to submit to him, serve him, and become part of his kingdom, not willing that any should perish. That, that promise that was given, and even if you go back to in, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, talking about this promise that has been given to us. Well, let's read verse 3. It's in First Peter, or Second Peter, chapter 1. As His divine power has given us all things, we'll refer to that later, that pertain to life and godliness, to knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have this promise from God that he is going to work with us and bring us into his family. Over in 2 Timothy, a corollary scripture to this particular one in Peter. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 3. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom to all to be testified in due time. That God desires all men to understand the truth and to be saved. That's his goal. That was the, the intent. He was given knowledge. The Greek, the Greek word here for knowledge is epinosis, which means core and fundamental understanding core and fundamental knowledge, full knowledge of what God is doing. And this idea that is here to be testified in due time, as we go through this process of salvation for all of mankind, eventually all are going to be given some understanding of this. That understanding God's plan of salvation is key to gaining salvation. He's going to give us knowledge and understanding. So, God is a God of life. He's not a God of death. He's not a God of harshness. Back in 
Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have a key scripture in understanding what God is doing and by which we can know that Christianity is the way that we should be living. We know in Acts chapter 3, the story there is where Peter and John have been used to heal a a man who's been lame from birth. And, of course, they are persecuted for that, held accountable for it. And then in chapter 4, Peter is talking about what has happened and how this can, it brings out how salvation is, can be brought to mankind. In Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that he taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day, came to pass on the next day, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, so I brought them before them, talked together in Jerusalem. And then in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power do, or by what name have you done this? What, what gives you in your mind the right to say and do these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. In verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. And by logic, every other religion that does not acknowledge Christ is rejected by the God of creation. We need the right understanding on that, what, which Christian, what real Christianity is. But let's note in John chapter 14, again, a corollary scripture to that very verse in Acts chapter 4. That it's only by Jesus Christ that we can enter the kingdom of God. In John chapter 14, verse 6, just in breaking it again in the middle of the thought, Jesus said to this man, to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know in John chapter 4, I mean John chapter 6, verse 44, and also verse 65, it says there that we have to go through Jesus Christ as well, that the Father selects us, and through Jesus Christ we can go to the Father. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Christ. And with that, one would think, okay, if we know Christ, 
understand that, then we can be called. But what about if we don't? Because as, as clearly as Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he didn't explain that to very many. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Verses 10 through 12. Mark 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. This is all discussed, also discussed in Matthew 13. He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. I'm not going to make this plain and clear to the masses. So that, he says in verse 12, seeing they see not, and seeing they see and not perceive, not understand, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. Christ said that he would not come to teach everyone. He was going to teach a very select few and work very closely with 12 of those few to do his work. So God was saying, or Christ was saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but only a few of you will understand that. Very select ones will come to understand that. In John chapter 20, John chapter 20, Verse 29, Jesus said to him, he's talking to Thomas, who had been unbelieving up to that point. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that would apply to many over the last two millennia and would apply to every one of us here. This has been called of God. We've not seen any of these things. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, accepting this, and in our minds and hearts knowing this, Believing you may have life in his name. You and I have been given understanding of what Christ was to do in his, in his first advent, his first coming. And what will happen, we've been rehearsing the Feast of Tabernacles, what he will do when he returns the second time. That he is here to bring life. So if one believes in Christ, we must believe in Christ. Then that person can overcome can hear and understand what God is doing and accept him, Christ, and his name and all that he stood for. So Christ is offering, through him, he's offering salvation to all those who didn't understand. So in due time, very important phrase. And over in 2 Corinthians, because if Christ is offering salvation to everyone... How can they do that 
if they've never heard the name of Jesus Christ, if they've never had the gospel preached to them, if they've never had scriptures open to them, how can that sacrifice of Jesus Christ be applied to them? If they've never heard the name and they've never seen anything that would talk about God's plan and through Jesus Christ, if he is the only vehicle by which you and I can be saved, if they've never heard that, as we can ask and ask ourselves and, and maybe have in the past and people do, is what happens to all of those people? If God is a God of life, then how can he condemn everyone who's been deliberately blinded and never been aware of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice? Well, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Father not only is a literal spiritual father to us by giving us his spirit and begetting us as his children, but he says he is the Father of mercies. That's his character. That's his mindset that he is the father of mercies he is not a god of death he is not a god of condemnation he did not create us as mankind in order to be a loser in terms of unable to bring us into his family into his kingdom and if he is the father of mercies then how can we reconcile and in fact we can't but how would one reconcile the description of being a father of mercies and then being of a nature that would condemn billions of people to eternal death or, as some believe, to eternal suffering and torment in a hell fire, though for those who believe in the immortality of the soul. But how would we call God the father of mercies if, in fact, the majority, based on our understanding, the majority of mankind has failed to observe God's laws and serve him directly. We can't reconcile that name. But in fact, God is the God of mercy. He's the father of mercies and tells us that there's more to the plan than the world understands. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 Begin reading in verse 22. It says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, referring to some of the Israelites, but toward you, those that are called, these were the Christians in Rome, and toward us, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue, or if they do continue, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So God would work with Israel at a different time. 
And if you were cut off out of, or cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is by wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, again referring to the Israelites, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So they've been blinded for a period of time. There would be a time when that blindness would, would go away. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has made a covenant to bring people into his kingdom, to bring the Israelites into his kingdom. And then concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. For the Gentiles were obviously at odds with the Jews and the Israel, what, the Israelites. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The plan that God has worked out cannot be canceled. There's not any power to bring it to failure. He's going to work with his people. He chose Israel physically to work with them as a nation. We heard earlier in the feast to be an example nation, which they failed to do. But at some point, he says the gifts and the calling that they are the people of God, they are to be the family of God. That that plan is going to come to fruition. He will not fail. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, Paul talking to the Gentiles, even so these also have now been disobedient, the Jews and the Israelites, that through the mercy shown to you they also may obtain mercy. God is going to bring about a time where all those who were blinded are going to be given understanding. Again, you understand the what's written here talks about all Israel in verse 26 all Israel will be saved the time when that will happen of course we know that it's not just Israel that God was working with Israel he also will not do for them what he will not do for the Gentiles so God is going to bring about a time where he will give understanding to everyone about his way of life and exactly what is expected of us. Every human being, what's expected in complying willingly, reverently with his law, serving him and serving Jesus Christ and recognizing their humanity, their sins, and be given, granted forgiveness. So let's look exactly how God will do that. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 20 and see how this God of life is going to give life to mankind. Revelation 20, we know, summarizes this plan, but our understanding of it is quite different. This last day pictures this very special part of God's plan. So in Revelation chapter 20, we'll read verse, first we'll read verses 4 through 6, talking about the first resurrection. 
And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and did not receive his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We just celebrated that for the last seven days. And then the first part of chapter, or verse 5 is a parenthetical phrase, and the, the verse ends, This is the first resurrection. The saints who have served God, who have understood his way of life and been given his spirit, and those who had died in the faith, are resurrected to immortality. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so as we quickly as we would blink our eyes, that they'll come out of the graves, they'll be changed into spirit beings. And if those that are alive when Christ returns are true Christians and have his spirit, that is the arbiter, if you will, if they have God's spirit, they have that begettle seed of eternal life in him, they will be granted eternal life as well. Very quickly, and one really can't even imagine what it would be like to be transformed from flesh into spirit. And yet, for all of us, that's our goal. That's what God intends for us. Then we continue reading. Verse 6 is, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the first resurrection. And if there is a first resurrection, there is at least one more. It has to be a second, otherwise it would be just the resurrection. We know there is more than one. So we come to this, we get to be the resurrection of life for the saints to work and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And then we, of course, we know that at the end of that thousand years, that Satan is once again loosed. He's set free to attack humanity. And it was uh, interesting in the discussion earlier in the, in the feast that uh, this will be preached. And uh, it's not hard to count to a thousand takes a few few minutes, a couple of minutes, but it's not hard to count to a thousand. And you think people will know when a thousand years are about up? Well, of course, they're going to be warned, just like we're warned, as was mentioned in the, in the feast, that they'll know that this is going to happen. But yet they won't understand the power and the influence, the kind of thought, the dominating thought, that Satan can inflict on mankind in our minds. If we think about the power of Satan, indicate the Bible indicates he had one-third of all the angels under his responsibility. And there's no indication anywhere in the Bible that I can find that he missed one in deceiving them and to go with him, join him in rebellion to God the Father. And these were beings, they were spirit beings, who forever, in millennia or millions of years, who knows, knew and understood and saw the power of God. And yet we're convinced that they could overthrow God. 
If God, if Satan could do that to all of the angels under his jurisdiction, his, his responsibility, what chance does man have? Not much. And so when Satan is loosed on, on mankind at the end of the millennium, he says there will be a lot. Send to the sea, he will rebel. In spite of all the warning and all the timing, all the understanding they've been given, all the manifestation of God's power to renew and rebuild this earth through the guidance of his saints, those in his family, being taught the right way of life. So we read then, we'll come down to uh, verse 11. After Satan is again defeated, Verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place, uh, there was no, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Now, brethren, this, uh, there's nowhere in here where you see the words, this is the second resurrection. But that's what it is. That he sees all the dead, small and great, stand before God. You know, Mr. Armstrong in his autobiography and, and elsewhere, and, in, and maybe... Some of us have heard those sermons. We know from the account even that Mr. Weston gave us in the opening night and looking at the history of the church, recent history of the church, that Mr. Armstrong observed these holy days for a number of years without understanding them. But we also know from the book of Psalms that understanding comes through obedience. And so Mr. Armstrong kept these days without understanding them. But over time, he came to see what... These, these holy days meant, and this understanding here of, of uh, Revelation 20 is unique to those individuals that God has called at this time. He came to understand what the last great day, the last holy day observance represented. Obedience produces understanding, and God gave that understanding to him and to the church down through these last few decades. Observing the last great day means scriptures that sometimes are a little bit hard to understand by the world, these scriptures are brought into very sharp focus. Now, a couple of them I read earlier. In Peter, talking about repentance. In Second Timothy, or First Timothy chapter 2, talking about all men being saved and given knowledge. How we understand that. Based on these scriptures right here, this second resurrection where God brings up all of those who have never understood his way of life. And no doubt there are billions of them down through the last 6,000 years of mankind's history. And God is going to bring every one of those who did not have a legitimate, that word's important, a legitimate chance to serve and obey him, to understand Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He's going to bring them up, resurrect them physically, and teach them his truth. And along with the scriptures that I just mentioned in Peter and Second Timothy, being brought into very sharp focus, 
One other one that many of us know and familiar in our reading, back in Ezekiel 27. Let's go back and, and look at what God tells us there. In Ezekiel 37, and if we go to a commentary and read what these verses mean, you won't find the truth. Because men of their own reasoning will talk about this as an allegory or metaphor. It's just a a spiritual representation of what will happen. But let's read the verses and think about these things as we read them to know that this is not what, what the world sees is not correct. And what God has given us to understand is the truth and the way to life. Verse 30 or chapter 37, verse one, the hand of the eternal came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the eternal and set me down in the midst of the valley. And he was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry, implying that they had been dead a long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And that's sort of a rhetorical question, in a way, and asking a man if they can live, and he's never seen anyone, how that would happen. So I answered, O eternal God, you know, I really don't know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the eternal. Thus says the eternal God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then, when you're alive, you shall know that I am the Eternal. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the eternal God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slains that they may live. He needs air to breathe. This is a, talking about something that's very physical. This is not a spiritual metaphor. They need breath in order to live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Paul said, so all Israel would be saved. And God tells Ezekiel, this is the whole house of Israel. And they didn't say, "My bone, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. And therefore prophesy and say to them, therefore, or thus says the eternal God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the eternal when I opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Here's the spiritual part. 
They're flesh and blood. They're bones. They're breathing. They're alive. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live beyond physical life. And I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I, the eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the eternal. We read earlier where a guy says that God's plan is irrevocable. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be defeated. Satan will not win the war. In terms of the battles that have gone on between him and mankind for the last six millennia, he's won many, many battles with with mankind. He's never won a battle with God. He's never thwarted any effort by God to work out his plan to bring his plan of salvation and working with a certain select number of people down through the centuries. He's never thwarted that plan. The church, once Christ started it, the church has never died out. There have been failings on the part of the church. It's interesting. Uh, yesterday, we, uh, there were several of us went through the Waldensian village, Trail of Faith. Uh, interesting title they give to, that, uh, to their park there. Because in the midst of that park, you see about three obelisks, as I remember. Uh, they don't understand what those mean. And in part of their literature, they advertise that annually they put on a special play honoring the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday morning. Now, those are descendants of that, what we believe were Christians lived in the Alps in the 14th century. And somewhere along the line, they strayed. It talks, I think, in the middle of the 1500s. They joined the Reformation where they could receive reciprocal aid. They could do certain things to help the Reformation, and those that were Protestants could help them. But the church has never died out. You and I are living proof of that. God's plan is not going to be defeated. He says here, I will bring, he says, the whole house of Israel out of their graves. And we read earlier in Romans where Paul explained that those Israelites who had rebelled were dead, they were, but they were cut off. But that was only temporary. And because of their failings, that God offered salvation to the Gentiles. So if God won't do for the Gentiles what he does, what he promises to do for the, for Israel, then not only are the Israelites, the, the people of Israel brought out of their graves in this great white throne judgment, but they are also, they're also going to be a resurrection of those Gentiles, which really just means other nations. That's a rather negative word. We think Gentiles is some sort of a pejorative word, but really it just means other nations. Everyone but Israel. God's going to bring them alive, to give them physical life, to, to learn his way of life and be a part, given a chance to be a part of his family. So the whole world, all those that have died, lived and died not knowing his truth, are going to be given a chance at life. And it's a good chance. If you want, with just the, the terms we use, the odds are the vast majority of those people who have never understood God's way of life will in fact accept what God has to offer to them. They will see the error of their ways and they will repent. And they will be given God's Holy Spirit. 
There's another chapter, another verse that is uh, brought into sharp focus with this that uh, we, we refer to in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, verses 20 through 25. Verse 20, chapter 65 in Isaiah. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner being one, hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and, and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. But they shall be descendants of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. As God points out that there's going to come a time when these individuals will have, what it indicates here is a hundred years, that this last great day will last approximately a hundred years. God does not spell that out explicitly, but that's what we understand based on the other scriptures we've put together here. God is going to resurrect physically all those people who never had their minds opened to the truth and all those who have never heard the name of nor understood the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And let's go back to Revelation 20 again. Revelation 20. We'll read these verses one more time. Verse 11 and I saw a great white throne in him set, whom, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And we understand these books that were opened are the, the books of the Bible that they were given and they're going to be given understanding of God's word. They have to be un, have to get given understanding of them if they are going to be judged by the things that are written in the book. They're blinded in this age, but in the time when God resurrects all of those who were blinded, he is going to give them a clear understanding of his way. And we heard from Mr. McNair the other day that there are some who estimate that up to a hundred billion people have lived and died since Adam. We don't know the exact number, and however we might be uh, estimating numbers of people, we got fifty billion, seventy-five billion, or hundred billion. God has an office for all of those individuals. He has plenty of room in His kingdom and His family for that, and He is going to judge them based on their works. And there will be, with understanding, with Satan out of the way, they're going to be, the vast majority of them are going to accept God's way of life and be given 
an office, a position, a responsibility in God's kingdom, and they're going to be granted eternal life, much as you and I hope will be the, the case for all of us. So allowing the billions of them are in this white throne judgment, most of them are going to be part of his family. Now, I've been asked on more than one occasion, does that make sense? Does that seem fair? If God wants billions and billions of people in his family, why would he allow them to go through 6,000 years of mayhem and misery and war and disease and sin and all the consequences of being seduced by Satan into his way of get and his rebellion to God? Does that make sense? Would there not be an easier way? Is there not an easier way into eternal life? If God wants us in his kingdom, is there not an easier way to be in his kingdom? Let's turn back to Romans 11. Interesting verse here. Or verses. That God answers that question. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. But if you were God, how would you do it? If your goal was to have multiple billions of children in your family and to share this universe, how would you do that? Because we can, scriptures tell us, as I mentioned earlier, that this whole plan was put in place before time began. And that the angels of heaven rejoiced when God created the universe, put man into this into that plan. So he tells us here in Romans chapter 11, verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience, and referring to Israel, referring especially to the Jews, that he might have mercy on all. It's a way of demonstrating his love and his, his power, his goodness. And Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. However, we might think this plan could be worked out. God is far wiser than any one of us or any human being could ever be. And he worked out this plan. He knew that this was the way to bring many, many people, individuals into his family. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Sometimes the human Intellect just says God's not fair because they don't understand God. You and I understand this. He's telling us here that this plan, this, these steps that these holy days represent, and even the last great day represents something that's beyond human rationale. His ways past finding out. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the, of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has given, first given to him, and this will be repaid to him? Well, of course, the answer is no one. No one can gainsay the wisdom and the plan and the love and the mercy of God. For of him, in verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. 
to him or to whom be glory forever. Amen. God, God's plan is to bring many, many billions of members into his family. And he had the plan to make it work that way and demonstrates his love. His plan will bear great fruit. Now, I want to spend a couple of minutes and in looking at Revelation 20 again in the last part because the Bible here does talk about, again, a third resurrection, although we don't see those words in Scripture. Let's turn back to Revelation 20. I will refer to you. You can look it up. There's an article written by Mr. Dexter Wakefield on why there has to be a third resurrection. And while this is a day of great joy, we do under, need to understand there is a another aspect of God's mercy. Because the world portrays God as being merciless, that he would hold someone, some physical human being, accountable for the given 70 years of physical life, that he would then punish them for eternity. And even on a human basis, that doesn't sound quite fair. God is a fair God. He is a just God. And even in his mercy, he does this. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So there is a time when those who have died and have not served God knowingly are going to be dealt with, going to be judged. And anyone not found written in the book of life, and there will be a relative few. When one looks at all of the people that ever lived, it will be a very small minority. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Just refer to a couple of scriptures. In John chapter 5, verse 25. John chapter 5, verse 25. Sorry, verse 24. It says, and most assuredly I say to you, and he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from life, from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear, who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is a son of God. And he goes on down then to verse 29. It says, don't marvel at this in verse 28. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation of eternal judgment. There is a, time, a point which those who God calls in this life, and they turn their back willingly 
on him and his way of life are going to be judged accordingly and are going to be judged to be condemned. In Daniel chapter 2, this is referenced. Daniel chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who knowingly and willingly disobey God. Paul talks about this in Hebrews chapter 10. I won't turn there. He talks about those who have tasted of God's Holy Spirit, those who understand his way of life and turn their back knowingly and deliberately on that. And he says there remains no more sacrifice for that. And they're going to be condemned and they're going to be destroyed in a lake of fire. And again, that reflects God's mercy, not that he was not going to condemn them to some sort of eternal hell fire and burning somehow this immortal soul would burn, but not burn up. God is going to destroy all of those who knowingly disobey him. And so we find then over in 2 Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away, and with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Clearly talking about what we'll read just a moment in Revelation. It says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This is referring to the day of God. goes actually beyond, in this context here, goes beyond the judgment at the end of this age and into the millennium and even into the white throne judgment, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. At the culmination of God's plan, he is going to purify this earth. He is going to bring about a different earth and a different world. In Revelation 21, Revelation 21, verse 1, after this white throne judgment, is handled and processed and all of those who have chosen to serve God or made a part of his family you find here the account says now I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And again, even as we heard one of the messages in this feast, that God wants to abide with us. The phrase was, he wants to tabernacle with us. It's God's plan to be with his people. The Father will be with those who have chosen to serve him. So the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. The physical things, the difficult things, the dangerous things, the sad things, the turmoil and the war that's associated with the physical things that mankind's been dealing with for the last 6,000 years. All of those things have gone. And then he said, who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. These are things you and I literally stake our lives on believing. These words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirst. Hearkening back to the words that Jesus Christ quoted on that day, that last great day of the feast. He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. I'll give you water. I'll give you water of life. Beginning and end, I will give you I'll give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirst, those who have come to understand his his way, and then he who overcomes. And let's go back. Just think about Revelation two and three, where God, Christ is talking about the churches. And over and over, the refrain through those seven churches is those who overcome. If you and I overcome in this life, and we serve God with all of our hearts, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. All things. And there are other verses that we use to explain this. All these, this all things refers to everything that God has created. And when he has recreated, or he created a new heavens and a new earth, those things will belong to you and me as part of that family. All of those that have obeyed God and become part of his family will begin, will have be heirs with Jesus Christ. You and I have that promise. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, God doesn't tell us a whole lot about what we get to do there, does he? We don't have too many details about these things. And there are all kinds of imaginations that other religions have come up with. All kinds of thoughts of what, what's waiting for them in this ether of their, of their imagination. But Psalm 16 does tell us this much. Not only is it a time when there's no pain, no no fear, no hurt, no death. He tells us in Psalm 16, get back there in a moment, 
Psalm 16, verse 10. And this is a prophecy in part about Jesus Christ, but also intones us as well because it talks about being with God the Father. Verse 10, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol. This is a reverence for Christ knew that the Father would not leave him, let his body be corrupted in the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. Now, it's hard to think about being happy all the time. (laughs) The fullness of joy. He says it here, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No, God's not talking about something essential. He is talking about the kinds of things that produce true happiness. Christ said, my father works and I work. There is work waiting for us. There is an eternity of accomplishment, an eternity of joy, a fulfillment of the right kinds of pleasures. God, I think God is happy. He's distraught at some of the things we have done to ourselves, but God is happy. Because he can fix everything that's negative. And he says that there are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy that you and I are going to be given. Because he's going to bring not only us, but this whole history of mankind. All of those who have been born a chance to be a part of his family. Let's turn back to Revelation 22 in closing. These scriptures were read yesterday, but they're certainly appropriate for understanding the spectacular nature of this, the meaning of this day. Psalm 20, or uh, Revelation 22, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. It will be sort of stamped with the name of the family of God. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we're going to rule. We're going to lead something for eternity. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Understanding was sent and given to them so that you and I would understand what this day pictures. You and I would understand exactly what God is doing with mankind. Verse 7 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 14 Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through their gates into the city. Verse 20. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
Amen. What God put in place when he created Adam was to begin a process of bringing many, many individuals into his family. And this day is truly a great day. Again, the word, the Greek word mega is a spectacular day. We and I will be part of able to actually see this plan unfold not only in the millennium. We'll see it unfold in the great wide throne judgment. All the while coming to better understand how magnificent this plan is that God has put in place to bring us and many, many billions more into his family. May God hasten that day. And all of us remain faithful to be a part of it.